Hey guys, this week's episode is a bit different, and it's heavier, for sure. My husband Hadi and I watched the movie The Mauritanian, which has a bunch of A-list actors and got nods by the Golden Globes and BAFTA, and in fact, Jodie Foster won a Golden Globe based on her performance in this movie. And it was about a fellow, Mohamed Oud Salahi, who was sent to Guantanamo Bay without a charge. It took him eight years to get a trial, and after ten years, he was in a courtroom still without a charge, where the judge said that he'd won habeas corpus and should be released. He was granted a release, but due to a series of appeals, was kept in prison for seven more years. It took him 14 years to get released, and he still can't say why he was in prison. There was no charge. So after watching the movie, and in fact, even before, when I was listening to a few interviews with him and watching the trailers, I did some research and listened to podcasts and found that Mohamedou was a really talented writer. He was really personable and really wanted his story to be heard. So I sent him a DM on Instagram and he replied and was very open to telling his story and wanted to share his story further on every platform possible. As a Muslim American, I've always actively distanced myself from anything remotely related to or even rhymes with terrorism. We saw our community get scapegoated in the wake of the horrendous 9-11 attacks, which shaped our history as a community. Despite not having the reason to, we were, we were treated poorly while mourning the devastation that happened on our own nation and our own soil, feeling the same feelings of insecurity that the attack brought to all Americans, along with the fear of being scapegoated and targeted for being Muslim and for folks being so angry and wanting to blame the attacks on somebody and looking at us, me as a young woman in hijab, I remember the discussions that I had with myself and others. Do I want to look Muslim? Do I want to wear hijab? Or do I just wash my hands clean of this scary identity immediately after the attacks? And then the wars began and I'm an Iraqi American. I saw what was a home back home also get destroyed. I could say there's just a lot of trauma and that's that's one experience and a privileged one. One from somebody who was able to kind of comment from her armchair in the United States. But in the community, we would hear musings about Guantanamo Bay, an island in Cuba or a bay in Cuba, and people getting thrown in without trial or charge, innocent people. And then we'd also, of course, hear about people who should have been accountable for the attacks and were being held accountable and put on trial and so on and so forth. But there were always stories about people who didn't have the evidence, the trial, or charges who were thrown in. And I personally would hear these things, but again, as a Muslim American, I, I you know, would hear these stories, but there wasn't a whole lot I could do. And People were worried, would, would I be the next scapegoat? Would they come after my father without evidence or charge? I think this was a trauma that we don't really talk about publicly, at least within the Muslim American community. And I have friends who have fathers who were, were thrown in jail and just really traumatic things. So when I researched Mohamedou, I reached out to him. And in my research, he was clearly a very extraordinary fellow. Once you get to the end, you'll hear Mohamedou's big message loud and clear, which is that democracy and human rights do work. Believe in democracy, believe in human rights, and stand behind them always. Hi, Mohamedou. Hi. Thank you for having me, Leila, on your program. 
Oh my gosh, are you kidding me? So this episode's a little different, Mohamedoun. In past episodes, I've highlighted careers, and you currently have a career in media, right? But I've highlighted careers in media or medicine and music, and it's kind of been like a how-to, like I did this, and then I did that, and that's how I got here. But this episode isn't exactly that, but it's a really important story, and your story is inspirational the way it turned out, and now you are in the global media spotlight. I mean, you spent 14 years in Guantanamo Bay. You were released without a single charge, and while you're in prison, you wrote a bestseller, The Guantanamo Diary, which is now a movie with A-list actors. Jodie Foster won a Golden Globe for it. Benedict Cumberbatch is in it. Tahar Rahim, Shailene Woodley. And it was directed by an Oscar-winning director, Kevin McDonald. And now you're standing with a cleared name where the U.S. judiciary has deemed you were innocent after 14 years of imprisonment without a charge. Um, so I'm... I'm really looking forward to chatting with you and hearing about things from your perspective. But a movie was made about you. Tell us why. Uh, first, I again, I would like to thank you so much for having me to reach even more people on your platform and uh, to tell just the story that is not only my story. This is the story of so many people in this part of the world who are treated outside the rule of law. I mean, it's okay for the government to suspect people, you know, that's the job of the police, the FBI, to protect people. And if someone has uh, somehow questionable behavior, it's their job to investigate. But what is not their job is based on just suspicion, kidnap people and torture them. And torture them, even some were tortured to death. So when I share my story first, I share the story of so many people who were not fortunate enough to have platforms or to speak the language or to, to be able to write. So I'm doing this uh, very gladly, and I think it's a good work. And to tell you the truth, I mean, I'm so blessed, you know, thank Allah and thank the people you know, including from your country who stood by me and who made sure that the law is respected, you know, and against all odds, they stood by. Because who are the people? We don't have the weapons, we don't have the violence, we don't have the police, we don't have the military, we don't have the weapons, none of that. The only thing we have is the law. And you know what happens if the law fails us. You know what is happening in the Middle East, what is ha happening in some parts of Africa, you know, where the law is not, fortunately, entirely respected. And I'm so blessed. I mean, how many people get to write a book? And how many of those people get to get that book translated into almost 30 languages? And being a best-selling book, everywhere. You know, I remember the very first day I heard about the publication of my book. You know, I was sitting in my cell attending a Spanish class in prison. <laughs> you know, I just wanted to fit in. And there was this TV in the background and the first headline on the TV was about my book. There you see my picture with the book. And this is after I gave up. We fought almost eight years, and the government refuses to allow us to uh, 
go to the, to the public and very much argue our case, you know, in the public forum when they refuse to allow us to go to any court, you know, give us any meaningful, you know, uh, forum where I could prove my innocence. Mind you, prove my innocence. In a normal world, you don't have to prove your innocence. You are innocent. They have to prove your guilt, but that's not Guantanamo Bay. Guantanamo Bay is about for you to prove your innocence beyond any, any uh, doubt. And I'm not saying reasonable doubt, beyond any doubt. And, uh, and that's it. And then I saw it and I felt, oh my God, I'm a free man. The day I saw my story being shared with the world, even though I was not part of the, that world, you know, this like was the first time, you know, that we poke a very big hole in the wall of silence, you know, that decided the fate of Guantanamo Bay's detainees. And, you know, I, I don't know how long, but I think it's few, I don't know, it's not even two weeks, I think, when people from Hollywood called my lawyers and they said they want this, they want to turn this book into a movie. Mind you, this is not the process. The process is for you you know, to publicize your book in Hollywood circle. And then they they read it, they say, yeah or nay, you know. Mostly they say nay, you know. Because people, like, there are, like, thousands, hundreds of thousands of books published every year, but very few of them make it to the silver screen, you know. And, uh, and you know, everything they told me, the lawyers, I said, yes. I mean, they were talking, like, about money, and so I don't care about that, you know. When you don't have your freedom, money has no meaning to you. I mean, one million dollar in prison can buy you the same as one dollar. There is no difference. Mm. You know. And yeah. I was so happy, you know. Yeah, I definitely had a question about that. How one publishes a book and gets a movie from prison when typically there's an agent involved. But let's start about that, how how you went into prison without a charge. It wasn't even eight years until you had a trial. So this all started when you were about 30 years old, right? And and how did it start, Mohamedou? So I had this phone call from my cousin. He just was very innocent. So he used a phone that is registered under the name of Osama Bin Laden. And he called me. He lived then in Sudan. And it was very innocent phone call. So, uh, and that is on record, by the way. It was everything was recorded. And uh, he asked me. His father was sick, and he asked me to help send money to his father to pay the bills in Mauritania. I then lived in Germany. So this raised a red flag, you know. And he called me. So I don't know. I don't ask people uh, what, what phone you use when you call me, you know. You just call me and I receive the phone call. And he called me and then they intercepted this phone call and they said, this is a red flag, which was all okay. I don't mind. I, I don't know any of that, by the way. I only many years later on, I learned about these things. So, and uh, I mean, I was then in Germany, a country ruled by law. They investigated, came back to the Americans, told them, there is nothing against this guy. <laughs> Those, this is family call, you know, and it's very clear what the guy told me, asked me to do. You know, it's, 
a daily occurrence, you know, asking your family members to help other family members. And yeah, like I said, I have only this relationship with my uh, with my cousin, and it was very innocent relationship. So this was like late '98 or early '99, and when I saw when I saw like the behavior of German authorities was very weird toward me. I was so scared. I never had any running with the police up to that point. So I decided to move to Canada because I had already my landed immigrant. So it was already a plan I had set because when nothing uh, goes well in Germany, so I would just go to uh, to uh, Canada. So and I decided to move to Canada. And there you go. A man. <laughs> you know, as what? Uh, <laughs> okay, he's testing your, uh, he's testing your uh, connection. It worked. <laughs> I'm gonna lock it. The door, okay. So I, I moved to, uh, to Canada, like I said, because I was scared, you know. Uh, and then in Canada, you know, you know, I'm a half of, like meaning I know the whole Quran. And then the, the mosque in Canada, I was introduced to uh, the Imam by my, by my friends who used to be with me in Germany. And the Imam said, oh my God, could you please help us with Taraweeh during Ramadan? I said, of course, no problem. A guy by the name of Ahmed Rassam in this infamous millennium plot was caught trying to, uh, to uh, smuggle explosive to harm innocent people in the United States. I mean, horrible stuff. And then they said, ah, okay, look, this guy came from Germany. We know he has a friend who is a friend of Osama bin Laden. And now in Canada, this guy who used to be, uh, the, who used to go to the same mosque as he, this guy is the guy. He's behind everything. And mind you, Leila, I never met this guy. I don't know him. I never heard of his name. Nothing like that. And then they start an investigation in Canada. They found out again. I was innocent. I had nothing to do with this. And then they conspired with the American, the Mauritanian, to lure me in a place where there is no law, you know. And then they uh, talked to the Mauritanian, who talked to my mom, told her, you need to uh, call your son, tell him that you're sick, and he needs to come back to the country. And my mom did that. You know, my mom is very law-abiding, and she believed what they told her. As I, soon as I arrived in Dakar, I was kidnapped. This is January of 2000. And I was stripped of my passport later on when they found no evidence against me. None. Zero evidence. And they stripped me from my pass, passport. And I was in the country trying to uh, do my best work. You know, I worked as a programmer and system administrator. And I was just like making enough money, you know, to take care of my mother and my family, my wife. And after 9-11, America went just haywire. They start just like to kidnap people from poor countries and from the Middle East and Africa in this very known operation, torturing them, forcing them to uh, like, uh, uh, like give uh, false confessions, as it turned out. And I, I understand, Leila, I understand that what happens in 9-11 is atrocious. I mean, I, to be honest to you, let's speak very frankly, this is shameful, you know. I'm even like, as, as a Muslim, as a person from this part of the world, you know, you know this, is, this is like people who are, 
hijacking like our belief, our religion. And, but this is not a reason like you just go and go crazy and punish people who are not, who have nothing to do with any of this. First, it's morally wrong. It's against the law. And it's also against security because if you use your resources, your energy, arresting and torturing innocent people, you wasted energy that you should focus on the criminals, you know, and we all are against criminals. I never seen a Muslim walk in and said, oh, I wish someone blow me up today. I never seen that in my life. Well, I see that people pray that no harm comes to them. And yeah, the rest of my story is, is very known. So I was kidnapped, taken to Jordan. And this has hurt me the most. I mean, why is always like this part of the world, like the dictators and the authoritarian regime who are used to this dirty job? I never understand this. You know, this is like beyond pale, honestly. Yeah, that, that was a really, really hard time. September 11th, as you said, was atrocious. It all these people died innocently and then Guantanamo Bay opened shortly after and in Guantanamo Bay there was enhanced interrogation which effectively meant torture which has since been outlawed I mean 10 years ago it was outlawed because it was so bad where violence was used in isolation and sleep deprivation and and unfortunately all these horrendous horrendous things where people were interrogated for years until they got a confession out of them. And my understanding is, as highlighted in the movie, is at some point you had a breaking point and you were, they, they told you they were going to take your mother and bring her to Guantanamo Bay and showed you falsified paperwork that said she was coming if you didn't confess that you were accountable for masterminding the attack. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Leila, you're right. I, I can never forget that fateful day. You know, it was seared in my memory. You know, I came to the interrogation room, and I wasn't in good times. I was doing very bad. So the first 70 days to that, up to that point, I, I was never allowed to sleep 70 consecutive days. Only a few hours, whenever they choose them, they keep interrupting my sleep. I was exposed to sexual assault. I was beating. I was stood. I was stood up so many hours, etc., etc. I was pulled, put in the fridge. You know, I'm not talking about insult and, you know, what they tell you. I'm not even talking about it. I was deprived of my medication up to that point. But when they came to me, you know, this Chicago lieutenant, police lieutenant came to me. He was the boss of the team, but he was working from behind the scene, I never met him actually up to that point. So he came to me with an assistant of his and he gave me a letter explaining that my mother would be kidnapped and she would be put in a man prison, you know, and they will not, they cannot prevent people from raping her and so And that did it to me, you know, I was like, I was devastated, I was like flattened. You know, I was like, I, then, I wish they could read my head. At that point, I want to say everything they want. Everything. You know, there was no limit to what I would confess to. If they told me I had killed uh, President Carter, uh, uh, I would have said, yes, I did kill him. You know, even though it was happened 
it happened before my before my I was born. So, and uh, and and uh, they yeah and they, they but they continued the torture. They took me to another camp. They call Echo back then, just special for torture. Only torture people go there. And uh, they helped me like sign a confession. And like, you know, we were discussing, we were negotiating what should I confess to because they wanted to stand the trial because they want to kill me. And so they figured that nine uh, eleven wouldn't stick because there was very, really no evidence. And then, and million plot wouldn't stick either. But they told me, you may have plotted to attack the CN Tower. I was like, what is CN Tower? And then they explained me CN Tower is in is in Toronto, I think. I never heard of that place in my life. And uh, and yes, I say, oh, this is good because this person, you know, First Sergeant Charlie, he's very smart. Because attempting to do something, it's easy to confess to. And it's just like doing it, you know, uh, according to the law. So if you if you like especially in this whole terrorism uh, quagmire, when you, when you attack a building or you attempt to attack it, the same punishment almost, you know? And they say, okay, you, you tried it, so no one can disprove that, you know what I mean? And then they told me to write the confession, I wrote it and I signed it. Mm-hmm. Ironically, this was very, very bad for them because now they have to tell everybody in the government that I did this. And thank God there are people in the U.S. government who are good people. You know, honest, they want to defend the country. They don't want like to harm innocent people. They, they came back because it's like, I want to explain to you, see, if the police, especially like in this, you know, international stuff. So if you, if you make a statement to FBI, the FBI has, has to do something called dissemination. You have to send this to many agencies in the government, you know, a center of dissemination. Those have to give feedback, you know, to compare this information against whatever they And they came back to them in my case. They said, this is BS. He didn't do this. And then from that point, after this false confession, uh, their case started really to collapse. And we know from record, Leila, that they knew at least by 2005 that was an innocent man, but they still kept him for 11 grueling years behind bars. And you know, that's that's a part of the story. When I was watching the movie, there's a prosecutor that they put on the case for you, who Benedict Cumberbatch played Stuart Couch. He's a, a super faithful Christian military man. And you could just tell he, he's a good, a really good man. And so they told him, get this guy killed get him get him executed figure out what we're prosecuting him on and let's let's get him and so he started to look at the evidence he put up a big fight to figure out what the super classified evidence was against you which they weren't intending on giving to him and when he finally obtained it he found out that it happened through coercive interrogation which violated the uniform code of military justice u.s laws and the u.s treaty obligations and he he left the case and they couldn't pick up a prosecutor after that. And he stands very tall and true to why he left the case and why he thought it was unjust. I thought that was really, I mean, 
the movie was really well done, but I can only imagine what that was like for you. You know, I never know any of this. I only know of all of this after the fact. I had no memoranda about what was going to be to be done with me. All of this, like the penalty case, they were preparing this. They never told me anything about it. And all this discussion with them and him, or with General Jeffrey Miller, this all happened, and I had no, no, no information about it. My family had no information. My lawyers had no information. This all the U.S. government playing the judge, the jury, and the prosecution in one single person. You know, and uh, I was just like waiting to get taken out of that cell and go into this kangaroo court and then be executed. You know, that is the so big an insult to the decent American people and to the rule of law and to the sacred life of people that was wasted in all attacks, you know, because no one is, you know, no one is uh, winning, gaining anything from, like, punishing an innocent man. No one. And, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I find it very... Uh, very honorable what he did. And I, you need to understand, Leila, that he went through stages. First he went, okay, this is a bad guy. I'm going to put him to death. You know, always believe your government. Believe what your government tells you. You know, soldiers, military. And then he was like, oh, okay, this doesn't make sense because this is pretty contradictory of the information that this guy is providing. And then he just wanted to see what was going on. But they stonewall him. They say, no, you don't get to know anything. We just give you the evidence, what he gave us. And he said, no, I need to know the circumstances. Because if I put him to death, it has to be clean, you know. And then that's when he started that this was like a very evil deed, you know, taking place. And he was like very upset. He was upset, not because I was tortured, because he couldn't get the... Uh, the evidence, untainted evidence against a bad guy, quote unquote. And then later on, when he learned more about the case, and when I was declared innocent, and then he was, I think he told my lawyer, if it's good enough for uh, Judge Robertson, it's good enough for, you know, because Judge Robertson is the one who granted my petition. So we can probably transition now to... The easy part. We'd started with the interview before before the call. And we agreed on sharing your story with the world, the hard and impactful part. And then the easier, not easy, but the easier part is the book and the movie and how all of that came to fruition. So I would love to focus in the second half of this chat on your book. When did you start writing it? Is is the book story that you were just writing pages, sending it to your lawyer, and then one day saw it on TV? Like, is that effectively the story of the book? Yeah. So it's like so frustrating that, you know, they take you to a place and they muffle you. You have no contact with the outside world, no contact with your family. And they keep like weaving like fantastical his uh, stories around you that are very completely like, erroneous and just uh, downright uh, lies and uh, I just you know I just uh, started to keep a diary I wasn't allowed to have papers or pens but I kind of steal from 
are detainees and so I mean they gave me but they weren't allowed to so and then the guard came to me one day I just wrote anything I wrote in French I wrote in Arabic and in German because my English was not good when I wrote in English I wrote only like sentences to learn and repeat and learn the language and uh, so they came to me one day and they took everything everything then this was in 2002 or 2003 and I had to wait like two years for my lawyers to come and then I used that window and in within the window of three months I wrote all my stories you know I kept writing day and night day and night and then very small writing put them in envelopes and send them and then I remember the last page and then I start another page you know to keep the numbers as not to uh, confuse my life. And then when it arrived in September of 2005, uh, they had everything, but the government refused. You know, this is 10 years after 10 years my book was published. So my word was not allowed to, uh, to uh, challenge the official narrative. And then when your lawyer got all of the pages and put them together I understand there was a many year legal battle were you and her was the plan for her to just take the pages and turn it into a book and you kind of waited on standby or did you have any more involvement yes so limited that I was not allowed to get a copy of my book when it was published so I took I put everything in the hands of my lawyers and I told them I trust you and then you just do what you get to do because there was no like chance for any back and forth. And the editor, uh, he tried to uh, contact me and talk to me, but he was not allowed to. So. Yeah, I would imagine. And then so the book is published. You find out on the news. And how did you find out about the movie, right? I, just like after the book was published, they came to me. It's, it's not weeks, uh, very few weeks, if even weeks. And then they told me that uh, some people in Hollywood, like more than, at least more than one company, they wanted to make a movie out of the movie, uh, movie out of the book. And then I said, whomever you, ca- you want, you can take. I-, I don't know anyone. So As soon as you approve, people start working on the movie, but you're still in prison. And in 2016, you're finally released and you go back to Mauritania, right? Correct. What was that like? It was... As if someone comes to you and tells you, you are going to Mars. So you don't know what Mars is. You don't know what life is. And uh, this, I remember vividly this captain, with very pretty face, like sticking inside this bean hole. Bean hole is the hole in a cell that they hand you foods and books, like very small hole, like maybe... Uh, you know, my, like, like half of your uh, laptop screen and something that they give to you food through, you know, but you cannot go from it. You cannot escape from it. And then she stuck her face inside there and then she said, do you know that you're going home? I said, no. Then I remember what I had. I had in my cell like uh, some uh, CDs of, like, random CDs of two and a half men and uh, the pictures of my family, you know, because I always kept the picture that sent me because I want to look at the faces 
and watch them grow. And then, so I don't want to, to uh, forget my family, the faces or the names. So I take pictures and write names. And I and then the other thing I have is Shakespeare plays. You know, I read, I didn't understand anything, you know. It was like, oh my God, why did I get this book? That's it. And yeah, it was amazing. How long after they told you were you on a plane back to Mauritania? Uh, how long? It didn't take long. I mean, I don't think it's even one week. Yeah, it's. it's I, I don't remember exactly, but it's really very short time. Wow. You get on a plane back to Mauritania and you land. And there's this incredible footage at the end of the movie of you being received by your community, which, I mean, anybody who watches the movie can't help but just be totally almost feel like they're there in that scene when they show the real footage of you at the end. There was fear. You know, when you reach, when you reach the summit, that's it. You know, the summit was for me, it's freedom. Uh, so what next? This what next is the question. And then uh, nothing was familiar to me. The whole environment was not familiar to me. Faces were not familiar to me. And uh, I was very confused. Like, And uh, overwhelming. A lot, of, a lot of people, a lot because I wasn't allowed to see one single person. Now I can see so many people can talk to me without like uh, asking permission from anyone, you know. Yes. Yeah. And then all of a sudden there's like practical things. You're like, what is this iPhone? One of my fantasies, I wanted to have a, a satellite TV, big satellite TV. And then watch all the channels that were, I was forbidden from watching when I was in prison. Starting with the one that, and then watching all the movies that I wasn't allowed to watch. So I bought two satellites and two TVs. And I asked my niece, Najah, to install me the program, like put the news together, put the music together, and put, etc. She looked at me, she says, I don't, I don't know how to use a TV. You know, and uh, and uh, <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I'm so freaking old. <laughs> a very small TV, you know, uh, it's a very small like uh, phone, you know, because I'm I'm electrical engineer. I know like a phone is just a small computer. And I know it's a program is written in that. I like spend nights on and watching useless YouTube videos. <laughs> And then the first time that I know that, you know, they were spying on me, like uh, Google, because now after I don't know one week, Google knows everything I want. <laughs> they already tell me you want this and all this. So I know, okay, I showed my lawyer, I said, wow. You know, uh, because I understand algorithm, what algorithm means, you know. And I said, this is embarrassing because maybe I don't want people to know what I wanted to watch. They definitely know everything, as does Instagram. I um, So w welcome, welcome to the new world. And that renewed spotlight, the renewed spotlight 
on your story with a blockbuster movie and your love for media meant that you probably couldn't anticipate that your your face would be on those two screens pretty soon. And I would love to hear about the process with the movie. What was that like? And and meeting, you know, these A-list celebrities in the movie, they mentioned that you only were able to see E! on TV in Guantanamo Bay, the channel. So you probably knew who they were. What, what was that whole process like? You know, like, I make fun of my cousins and family. You know, they tease me, said, wow, you are a big guy now. You have the WhatsApp of Shirin Woodley, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, Tahar Rahim, and Jody Foster. I said, wow, you're still talking? I, okay, I'm, I'm deleting all you guys' numbers because I need to move up, you know, in the world, you know, because I cannot have those people's numbers and you guys' numbers. I was going to say that movie was probably not how you would have expected this story to end. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, look, I, I'm not I, I'm not too excited about anything, you know, at this age. And with my experience, as I saw, I'm not excited about, too excited because I, I don't want to, uh, uh, to uh, make like uh, expectations that I won't meet, you know. And I'm so blessed, and I, I I embrace everything. I bless those people who support me. I mean, you saw Jodie Foster, how she spoke out. This this was the worst of the worst. I was the worst of the worst in the last. And to have people like credible people like Benedict Cumberbatch, Shailene Woodley, and Jodie Foster speaking out for me, without me asking them to do that, that's like a very big deal. And I think we should we should like. Cap- capitalize on that because in this part of the world we are the worst ambassador of ourselves and we need your like to share with the world that we are good people and we want the same freedom that you enjoy in america in denmark in germany in france and we don't want to be like the exception like we don't deserve human rights you know if someone hurt us get supported and so on and so forth yeah we don't want to be the exception and I'm sure right now you you very much feel like an exception. Yeah, it has to stop. It has to stop. Well, before we wrap and get to the plugs, Mohamedou, I would love to just highlight one thing that came up. I was listening to a few podcasts with you on it and a few interviews. And what I found within your community of friends, and I mean, one of your dear friends is one of your old guards from Guantanamo, um, your lawyer who was incredible and highlighted throughout the movie. Nancy was just, you know, I I looked up what different people were saying about you and everybody focused so much on this incredible ability from you to forgive. And in fact, I found even a quote by you where you said, I don't believe in violence, but my whole story was violence against my body, my innocence, members of my family, and I never did anything. And then you called the movie a victory for nonviolence and a victory of the pen. And what I would love to ask from you is, what would you say was the biggest message that you wish after your experience everybody could have learned? What's the message that can make us all better, Mohamedou? So, Leila, I, I don't think I'm in a position to give any lectures to anyone. So I'm just a simple person and I want to learn as I much as I want to share. The only big lesson that I myself learned from all of this is that 
democracy and human rights do work and dictatorship and authoritarian regimes do not work so this whole idea that get down and dirty remove the gloves you know those are bad guys they don't answer the rule of law countries that respect the law and respect human rights are the safest country in the world and the country where people live in harmony they have a better economy better system of governance less corruption countries who remove so the so called gloves and don't respect the rule of law are in shambles for the most part and that they are unsafe the economy is bad corruption is rampant and there is no social justice so we need democracy we need democracy in this part of the world too you know and we need people to have voice and to choose like uh, who governs them etc uh, etc et yeah and you're you're in Mauritania now so you have been living there since you have a young child as we heard and married a wonderful attorney who i believe is canadian what's next for you mohamedou are you going to continue to write do you want to stay in hollywood what are your plans so so when i want to tell you one thing so small uh, small technicality so my wife is from the us you know and uh, the other thing Laila, I'm just giving you advice. When you got your spot in Hollywood, keep it. Do not move away. You know, it's the money, it's the fame, you know, and you can fly you fly only in like business class. Why why should I go away? No. Thank you very much for the advice. I'm not that humble. <laughs> so Hollywood is going to see more of you? Yeah. <laughs> Bring it on. Bring it on. I I mean you you're clearly a very talented writer and that was something that came up a lot throughout the movie as well. And Mohamedou where where can people find you after they hear this and want to follow along with you? I I'm on Twitter, you know. Twitter account just Mohamedou Old. M O H A M E D O U O U L D. That's my uh, Twitter and then on Facebook Mohamedou Ul Salahi also you find me on Facebook and uh, I welcome everyone and I would I would uh, I would like respond as many times you know as much as I could to anybody who wants to ask me questions yeah i appreciate that and this was really eye opening i mean hearing your story from you watching the movie yesterday I feel like I've just learned a lot. Um for anybody who has not watched the movie, you have to watch it. It's called The Mauritanian. It's streaming. You can find it on multiple platforms. We we purchased it through Amazon and watched it in the comfort of our own homes and I believe there's a release in theaters. But on, on a final note, as Mohamedou had noted, democracy and human rights do work. And when you see an injustice, it's it's upon us to stand up and speak about it and frankly even within the muslim community we have seen a lot of these injustices where people are held especially you know directly after 9/11 people were held or held without trial and the default response was to just stay quiet because we didn't want to get held for no reason either and we didn't want to something to happen to us you know without without charge without trial and without evidence and obviously for no reason as as we saw happen to a handful of people in adjacent communities so we stayed quiet and 
I, I feel thankful that Hollywood gave this a platform so that everybody else can look at it and not be afraid to say, whoa, what what happened here? Let's put this under the microscope. How did this happen for so long? And in fact, so even so that Muslims in America can't be afraid to talk about it because I, I know many of us, myself included, our default is to stay quiet because we're we're afraid of people putting charges on us that aren't real. I mean, it's happened. And so thank you, Mohamedou. Thank you. Thank you too. Absolutely. And please, please, just I want to tell you, your uh, uh, listeners that I love them. And please, please check my new book, Ahmed and Zarga. It's on Amazon too. And it's a short novel about Bedouin life in Mauritania. Thank you so much. Amazing. I, I can't wait to read it. Thank you so much, Mohamedou. It's been a pleasure chatting. Thank you so much. 